Welcome to Passimir's CAM Podcast, conversations on aerodigestive management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guests, speech-language pathologists Joanne Kabakungan and Hilary Sample, having a conversation on oral care and hygiene, part one. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Conversations on Area Digestive Management, the CAM podcast. And today I'm thrilled to be talking with Joanne Kabakungan and Hillary Sample, two speech language pathologists. We're going to be chatting about oral hygiene and oral care and a little bit on the history and giving you a lot of information on evidence-based practice for what we should be doing with our patients. So welcome, Hillary and Joanne. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. I want to first do a little bit of an intro. Uh, Joanne is a practicing speech language pathologist who is also a certified brain injury specialist. And she has been working for a few years in a variety of settings, including acute care, rehab hospitals, skilled nursing facilities. So she really brings to the table a wide variety of experience. And she has a personal passion for providing patient-centered care and working with the medically complex adult patient population. Her primary clinical focus is dysphagia and dystocia, and she also has some background in working with students and other practicing clinicians, helping to promote evidence-based care, both by training and mentoring, but also by speaking at the state and national level. So again, welcome, Joanne. Do you have anything you want to share about yourself or your practices? Well, thank you, Kristen, for having me. And um, I just really enjoy uh, the, the medical setting, whether it's the hospital or inpatient acute or home health settings or even in the uh, skilled nursing setting. I've enjoyed all the settings that I've been in. And then you brought with you, I'm going to say, because Joanne actually brought, um, brought up the idea of having Hillary Sample join us. And so Hillary, thank you also for joining in. Hillary is a speech language pathologist who works in patient rehab, acute care settings, and has also a focus on swallowing and then upper airway disorders in her practices. She is also passionate about education, mentoring, training. She's developed um, staff competencies, presents at the state and national level, and is really involved in helping all of us as clinicians be better clinicians. She and Joanne both kind of have a, a focus on that. But I do want to mention, Hillary, that you are also the co-founder of Communication Rescue Services. And through that company, you have developed and created Med Concerns app with a physician. I, I don't know. I, I think it was with one physician, but, one physician, but you and a physician developed that app to help improve communication for patients with aphasia, but do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself or anything that you'd like to add? No, I'm just so grateful to be here. Thank you so much, Kristen, for letting me add on to our, <laughs> to the talk because um, Joanne and I just loved um, communicating about these things together. And it's an honor to be here. The Med Concerns app is, uh, is like my baby. I, I have it just really was a focus of mine to improve patient provider communication. And the initial focus was on aphasia um, because there's such a communication gap there. And we know that, that the adverse you know, outcomes of that are big. There's a 
the results are huge for medical errors and, and just generally the quality of healthcare that they experience, but it doesn't just end with people with aphasia. We know that communication gaps are prevalent with hearing disorders, trach, vent populations, um, just wearing masks. So um, it's, it's sort of the goal is to improve patient provider communication across a broad variety of communication barriers. So the MedConcerns app is an aphasia-friendly medical assessment, and you can download it on the App Store. I think we need to do a podcast focused on some of those communication barriers and and pieces that patients run into, and we can uh, have a longer longer chat about communication and patient needs. But today, we're going to focus on oral hygiene and oral care. One of the things that you brought up, Joanne, when we were talking earlier is the kind of, I'm going to call it the disparity, but the change in our perspective on oral care over the years. And you and I were sharing when we began in our careers and we actually both began pre Langmore. I hate to say that not pre Langmore as a career, (laughs) but pre Langmore her publication, um, Langmore et al. 1998, which is on the predictors of aspiration pneumonia that is probably one of the more common publications that people are familiar with when it comes to the risk for aspiration pneumonia. And, And so let's talk a little bit about, we may start a little bit with you and I, as far as kind of what we did in our practice early on. And then Hillary came into practice a little bit after that publication. And so let's, let's chat a little bit about oral care and oral hygiene with our patient populations. Oh, oh great. So uh, you were very generous when you said I'd uh, been practicing a few years. Um, <laughs> I did, I did graduate uh, with my master's in 97 and I was doing my clinical fellowship from 97 to 98. When I started, we did, you know, though we needed to make sure people had clean mouths, especially if we were going into seeing a patient who was NPO. Uh, for the first time or had been in PO for a while. And at that time I was practicing um, acute care hospital and I was having patients come in with diagnosis of aspiration pneumonia from nursing homes and would have where they could barely open their mouths, that they had um, a lot of dried secretions in their mouths. And I had to do a lot of oral care just to even assess the oral mechanism. You know, so I was trained we use the term oral mechanism where I went to graduate school. My professor, I really liked what she used. We called it a structural and a functional exam. So first you assess the structure. And so that would be the oral mechanism itself. And then the function would be the cranial nerve exam. And so, you know, I would spend a lot of time just cleaning somebody's mouth just to be able to um, assess their cranial nerves, to assess their oral hygiene. So now 20 some years later, when I first read Langamore's article, uh, we all know that it takes almost 20 years to go for research to practice. And it probably was around 2018 that I actually read this article. And, and the 1998 article talks about um, some of the predictors, uh, which are the dependent for oral care and the number of decayed teeth. And it gave me a flashback to my CFY. <laughs> and so I'm thinking this she could have done this in the hospital system I was working at at the time. That That's amazing change to, to see. 
And I guess that's where we started. So we were we were doing oral care, but I don't think we knew um, the how prevalent it was until about 2018 is when I first saw the articles. And I think you said you you did as well. So something happened in 2018 that a lot of us started reading these and hearing this research. 20 years. <laughs> 20 years. Yeah, it's 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 kind of sad. I had I think I'd heard a little bit on the Langmore research, maybe a little before then. It was the Ashford article in 2005 and the discussion on the three pillars of aspiration pneumonia that that's the one I really had not heard much of until probably about 2018. I have no idea why. Um, Well, I will. I do know part of it, sadly, in my early career as an SLP, I didn't read the research as much as I should. You know, I wasn't that just wasn't trained when I went through school. We didn't have a focus on the research in the, the way we do now, where people are more aware of pulling the more recent research and the current publications and, you know, seeing what's out there. And I think that was a piece of it, but yeah, it was around 2018 that I really became more aware of all of it. It is the change in technology as well. So when we first started, Kristen, we were probably doing, you know, the ASHA journal articles for our continuing education or not as many options for continuing education as there are now. And so once you have the advent of the internet and, you know, I'm really excited. That's right. I age. <laughs> well, that's true. Cause I had to go to the library to get the article. Right. So now you've got Facebook and you've got all these wonderful, uh, like your podcast to provide continuing education. We did not have that access back in the late nineties. So that this helps as well. I'm glad you said that. Cause that, that, would be a primary reason why people in our, those of us who were around a little earlier, didn't (laughs) have the access that people have today to all the research and the publications and the continuing education and all, then all the options that are out there. So I know when I was practicing, I would run into it a lot with the dried secretions, the lack you know, of oral care. And we did provide oral care. It was something we were aware of. We just weren't aware of the impact that Mm -hmm. I don't think we were as knowledgeable about the, the significant impact that oral care can have. Now we were talking a little bit about our introduction to it. Hillary, I want to bring you in on the conversation a little, like Mm -hmm. how, how did you learn about oral care, oral hygiene, like in your grad program and then into practice? Well, it's kind of funny because about when you guys were um, learning about it and implementing it into your practice is when I was entering the field. So it's kind of funny how that all works out. Yes, I did learn about it as part of my grad program, but I, I spent a lot of time, you know, we were trained to read the research, dig in. And so I spent a lot of time outside of my grad program, digging into best practice standards and to end evidence that's out there just because I'm, we call ourselves nerdy SLPs because we're just that way. And that's how I, I started that way. And so that was, it wasn't as much like this drilled in part of my grad program, but more, um, sort of the, the experiences that I was having outside of it, where I was learning from those other things that you mentioned. So there's like the the Facebook groups, there's podcasts and things like that. Those things were taking me deeper into the literature than even my grad program. So I started out kind of with this fundamental awareness that we're looking at the host. We're looking at the environment that aspiration enters into rather than aspiration alone. And I think that's a huge distinction as far as what I, what I perceived um, from the education that might've been happening earlier where aspiration was more of the focus. And I think I wanted to add to that where Hilly was talking about 
that it's not just aspiration alone. I know finishing school in the, the late 90s at the time um, when dysphagia was really becoming a core of, of, of our field. At that time, a lot of we thought that aspiration or penetration and somebody's going to get pneumonia. And, you know, since that, and especially with uh, Ashford's pillars and more recent research, we realized that it doesn't just develop in isolation. That's not an independent disease, but it's a secondary disease. And it depends on um, other serious illnesses and medical complications. So like Ashford's pillars talks about, you need an impaired immune status. You have to have the presence of aspiration. And then what we're here to talk about today, the compromised oral health. And it makes perfect sense because how are you going to get a pneumonia? Where's the bacteria coming from? So it just kind of puts the picture together so that all of us can understand, you know, we're not, when we are treating dysphagia, if we're not looking at oral hygiene as a necessary part or addressing oral hygiene as a necessary part of our, both of our evaluation and plan of care, then we are missing a huge component of the adverse outcome that we're trying to avoid. Because all of us, we all do oral care on a daily basis because we brush our teeth mm-hmm. and we floss and we, some use mouthwashes and, you know, we do the, th- we do our own oral care. Yeah. And so we don't have those complications from the lack of oral care. We kind of control our bacteria, our oral bacteria and the, the environment for any kind of growth or issues with that. But our patients don't have that access and don't have that ability. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, first of all, just what is oral care and oral hygiene? You know, like, is it just, and I'm I'm being a little facetious as I ask this, but is it just taking the little tooth that sponge and rubbing around in the mouth or I'll tell you what I was, what I was taught was if you use a moistened tooth that to do oral care, you're not removing bacteria. You're just making it better tasting. And that was awful, but it stuck with me. <laughs> Those foam tubettes, you know, like um, you need that friction. And so definitely, I know we both know this. We all know this, that a toothbrush is going to do significantly more than a sponge. You decide whether or not you want to share this part with the world, but the, the analogy that I always use with my patients, because it's visual and we've all experienced it is when you're cooking eggs in a pan, you shouldn't be cooking eggs in and it coats, right? And the only way to get that film off is actual brushing because if you rinse it, it's not going anywhere. And if you use a sponge, it's not going anywhere. You need that friction to actually remove. And so when I'm talking to patients and families and nurses and whoever else, if Joanne and I are just enjoying a leisurely conversation about oral care, (laughs) we're talking about the friction necessary to actually remove the film, the biofilm that is, that is the bacterial colonization that we need to keep out of our patient's mouth as much as possible. So it's a, it's a big deal. And what, one of the things that we talk a lot about is that it doesn't matter if you have teeth, it doesn't matter if you're edentulous or if you have dentures, or if you have complete dentition, it matters that the plaque and microorganisms, they're coating on the tongue, they're coating on the palate, they're coating all over the mouth, not just the teeth. Um, although the teeth, tongue, and saliva are the most, you know, well-populated regions. And I know we, we probably all experienced if you've done oral care with anyone, you'll get your patients who are edentulists or have the dentures will say, I don't need to brush my teeth. I have dentures. Yes. And so uh, a lot of education goes in there and we have to stop to think about those patients 
So those of us, if you have natural teeth are going to the dentist once or twice, Mm -hmm. twice a year, and people are looking in our mouths, people with dentures are encouraged to go be seen by a dentist once a year, but I don't think that that happens very often. So nobody's looking in their mouths as, as much as um, somebody who has teeth. And if you don't have dentures and you're just a dentulist, no one's looking in your mouth. That's what I've kind of seen. Um, and SLPs frequently are the the only ones that are that are taking a look in there. And I wanted to add to you, Kristen, you, I, I almost chuckled when you brought up those pink swabs. Uh, people can't see us, Hillary and I looked at each <laughs> other because we are the people that go in and take those pink swabs <laughs> out of people's rooms <laughs> and put in the toothbrushes. Because I'm sure you've had that experience where you pull, somebody's got that pink swab and you pull it out of the cup and it's just this thick, it's not even water anymore. I'm not (laughs) even sure what it is. And there's just all that bacteria growing on those pink swabs. And so sometimes we'll bring them in, you know, we have to think about what the person needs in order to do oral care. So I, I use pink swabs sometimes to moisten the oral cavity, you know, to help with like a liquid wash or something like that for someone who's, who needs something a little bit different. But when I take those in there, I'm nervous. And it's just an interesting aspect, you know, like when you, when you realize that it needs to be a toothbrush, you know, even bringing something in that could help, but maybe confuse people is, is a little bit scary because we don't want that to happen to our patients. So um, it's just a big deal. And, you know, so for some people, they might not know, like, how do you actually do oral care with a person with no teeth? And I always tell people get a baby toothbrush, but you need that friction too on the gums, but you're just going to brush more gently than you would with the teeth. Um, So if anybody's out there wondering, um, you know, they probably know, but if they don't, that's, that's what I recommend for people that are edentulous. I've had to assist patients who are edentulous, but have dentures, Mm -hmm. putting their dentures in and out, putting their dentures in what often it gets forgotten when families come in is they don't have with them the tablets or anything to clean the dentures. Yeah. And so that's another piece of the oral care is not to clean just the mouth, but to have proper cleaning of the dentures Definitely. before they're being put back into the mouth. And you can't have significant friction on the dentures, or you can actually injure them to the extent that they carry more bacteria. So we have to be very careful that we're not actually causing more problems in the way that we clean. So a gentle brushing of the dentures is also highly recommended, but you know, that brings us to like the supply issue when, you know, we talked about the barriers that might be keeping people from doing oral care and supplies are part of it. So if the family doesn't bring in the denture tabs, you know, we've worked at places that have them there, but some places might not. So um, those are definitely some of the barriers and advocating for those, those supplies is a big deal. And some of our patients benefit from suction toothbrushes. So Mm -hmm. our patients who either have apraxia and can't swish and expectorate or their cognitive skills are not there to, they'll swallow the toothpaste or something. So it, that's always helpful if you're working in a facility that provides suction toothbrushes as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that, and that was actually getting at what I, I started to ask. So what are your recommendations when it comes to patients who are less alert, who, you know, may not be awake or maybe minimally conscious and, you know, are kind of on that lower interactive level as far as trying to provide oral care. That's where, that's where the suction toothbrushes come in there. If you haven't used one, they're really nice. They hook up to the suction machine. You just take off the yonker suction and put the toothbrushes on. And um, it even comes with the, the liquid that you use and you can, you know, you might have to help open the mouth, but use that 
people usually start opening their mouth though. Yes. I've found when, when, once you start mm-hmm. and you can clean and it's got where you cover it up and it suctions everything out, kind of like you're at a dentist's office. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the problem that, you know, if I'm bringing it back to barriers, but one of the things that we've noticed and that the literature supports is that people see oral care frequently, healthcare staff um, frequently see oral care as comfort care, as grooming. And um, we need to take it out of it being grooming and take it into this is this is risk mitigation. This is infection control, as Joanne likes to say. And, you know, the more that we can do that, the better. But it is also comfortable. It is also right. giving them that sensory feedback when they're not really uh, when they're not alert or maybe they're those patients with disorders of consciousness and things like that. It is sensory information. And what we know is that salivary production is incredibly important to the oral biome, to the homeostasis of the oral biome, the composition, the the amount, and like maintaining the health, the bacterial load that is, that is safe. Right. So, um, we know that brushing will increase that safety, you know, like the bacterial, um, to reduce the bacterial overgrowth, but it also stimulates saliva production. So we're helping them to have a, you know, safer and more comfortable mouth just by brushing. Um, but the more comfortable, but then as you get that more, uh, as you get the salivary flow increasing that also, again, because saliva is so important for maintaining the homeostasis and the, and the cleanliness of the mouth, it's also, you know, just important to know that that's improving over time, just by brushing in that moment, the next, you know, the, the moments that follow follow that the mouth is also going to be cleaner because now you've increased saliva production. I know I went around in a big way talking about that, but (laughs) well, it actually leads into a thought I was having as you were talking about it, which is hydration Mm -hmm. because hydration is a key factor in that saliva production and just kind of the, the overall state of the oral cavity. So we've got to think about that with our patients also, because if they become dehydrated, then we get that you know, cotton mouth and the dried secretions, and we don't have the the mobility uh, that they need in, from an oral standpoint. Oh, definitely. And just to go back, uh, we mentioned Ashford's 2005 article, but in 2012, his research is showing, you know, that saliva is the primary defense mechanism for your oral cavity, and it uh, maintains the homeostasis. It keeps everything the way it should be, keeps a healthy balance of the chemicals and the bacteria in the saliva. And so if we want to think about our patients who we go in and do our oral mechanism exam, and we, we've noted for over 20 years that people have xerostomia or a dry mouth, but that that's actually impacting their oral health as well. Mm-hmm. And whether that be because of their medications or they're not getting hydrated, like you just said, Kristen, history of radiation, history of radiation or anything like that, that there's a reason that we've always documented, oh, this person has a dry mouth. And I don't know that we are always cognizant of that. I think the one thing that we think about is efficiency, swallow efficiency, which it's it's a necessary part of lubricating the bolus so that you can actually clear it from your oral cavity, try to swallow without any moisture and you're going to have trouble. So that's something that I think that sticks out to people. But if we could just talk for a second about all of the the importance, all of the benefits of of salivary production. We have like your taste sensation, your, the lubrication that I already mentioned, it aids in digestion. But what we were talking about before it, 
it helps to ward off the bacterial colonization as well as viral colonization and fungal colonization. It helps to cleanse the mouth, especially in that flow, moving the bacteria out. It helps to remineralize the teeth to keep that enamel functioning, to keep bacteria from entering and causing decay. So it's decay prevention. It keeps the pH at a level that's appropriate. So it neutralizes acid. And then it also helps to, to keep those healthy microorganisms intact so that you can have that community that is beneficial for the mouth. So that's a lot of benefits for salivary production. And I'll tell you, I don't see many people with much saliva when, you know, when I'm um, doing assessments, mm-hmm. because, you know, I work, I work a lot with uh, patients post-stroke. And so we're doing stroke prevention. And um, part of that is those medications that dry out the oral mucosa, oral and pharyngeal mucosa. So now we have a situation where we know that the stress is going to alter salivary production. It's also going to increase bacterial colonization within the uh, oral pharyngeal cavity. But beyond that, we're also, we now have an environment that's less protective, significantly less protective. And also, hey, we're going to have a less efficient swallow because we're less lubricated and we can, we can really over treat over recommend over diagnose because of that alone. And so one of the things that we make sure to do is when we are meeting our patients for the first time, looking in their mouth. And when you see a hyposalivation, that that means something beyond they just have xerostomia. It, it triggers the thought about efficiency. It triggers the thought about, Hey, this person's at a greater risk if they do aspirate. So it's really helping us form our, our hypothesis related to risk. So one of the things mentioned early on were barriers to being able to do the oral care. And a lot of it had to do with supplies. So what would the two of you say are the base? Like if you couldn't get everything you wanted, you could only have a couple of things what are a couple of things that are kind of essential to have in a patient's room to be able to maintain and, and have good oral care? Well, I always have a toothbrush and toothpaste and um, the basin. little basin to spit in. Um, if they need suction oral care and I don't have suction toothbrushes, I frequently use a manual toothbrush with a yonker, you know, and just combine the two like a dentist might. And, and so that's what I typically would use. What about you, Joanne? Yeah, it, it, I, I agree with Hillary. Those are, those are the, the main basics right there. But if somebody can't spit, I would have them up in a chair and you don't have access to like a suction, for instance, I would use gravity as your friend, you know, and help them to lean forward onto the sink. You're doing oral care and letting the material slide out of the mouth with gravity's assistance. And then I might bring in those pink toothettes. <laughs> Um, and like help to clear out the remaining residual while doing a little bit of a, um, a cleansing with water, a rinse. And, and so then you're able to do oral care, whether they're in bed. So that's more your more um, debilitated patients mm-hmm. or those that are up in a wheelchair. I like to take them to the bathroom because it's a more normal setting. So mm-hmm. as, as Hillary said, there we're in that functional ADL, the activities of daily living. So, uh, you know, especially in the rehab setting, our goals are always trying to be a functional goal because we want them to be able to do that at home. So Hillary mentioned that about the sequencing, the memory, do they recall to turn off the water? So, you know, SLPs, our field are, is so broad. And on the same patient, we may have a half hour, 45 minutes to do swallowing and oral care and aphasia cognition. And you can really use oral care to target all those goals. You know, I can, I can, 
being in rehab, I could use almost anything to make it target a lot of my goals. So, you know, going to the doctor, going to the dentist, or, you know, what are the supplies I need? I use it as simply as um, like just having some, like it's alerting to have a toothbrush in your mouth and to have that moisture and things like that. So with people that I work with, with right hemisphere dysfunction, I'm often bringing in that toothbrush just to work on the visual attention, look forward in the mirror, you know, locate the things that they need for oral care, including the seeing candles tend sustained attention for completion of the task. It's, it's all the things, but it's, but there's so much cognition that's going into it. And she's throwing in some higher level conversation and, and, um, and, uh, higher level cognition that goes into it too, like generating these different answers. Um, you can do so much with it. Like why not treat patients in the most functional way possible? And I think when you're asking about the, the basics, you know, we, those supplies we just mentioned are not that expensive. You know, I think you brought up a really good point early on Hillary that fits everything you just said. And that's that we've got to take oral care and oral hygiene out of the grooming category and put it into more of a medical needs category. I don't know the best title for it, but it's it's, infection control, infection control. I do like it under infection control. Yes. Unfortunately, we're going to have to stop with today's podcast but it has been a great discussion and I appreciate your time. And I look forward to continuing the discussion with you in the next podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.